Hello, and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger, and my guest today is Sarah Moulton, the host of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, a public TV show heading into its 12th season this fall. She's a protege of Julia Child, graduated from the Culinary Institute of America, and worked at Gourmet Magazine for 25 years. I've long been awed at what a great teacher she is, helping home cooks make better food with less stress. She did that for years on her call-in show on the Food Network, and now answers listeners' questions on her weekly segment on Milk Street Radio with Chris Kimball. Today, she's here with us to help us cook more confidently with her one real good thing. Cook without fear. Sarah Moulton, it is such a delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here and talking with us today. Thanks, Ellie. I'm delighted to be here. You know, you've been helping home cooks be better and take the stress out of cooking and answering all kinds of questions for so long. I'm always just kind of blown away by what a great teacher you are, I have to say. So I I mean, you have all the culinary credentials and and all that experience, but I think not everyone who does that and who has that skill and creativity is also a really good teacher. And I just love how you bring things to people in such a simple, doable way and, and your helpfulness there. So um, I just wanted to tell you that at the get-go. <laughs> Thank you. I was actually supposed to be an elementary school teacher, I think, um, because, I mean, not that I ever pursued it professionally, but I, all the way through high school and also in college, I tutored uh, kids who were behind in math and reading, you know, second and third graders. And I read every book known to man about how children learn, why children fail, and discovered that we don't all learn the same way. And, um, you know, it's interesting because what applied to children back then certainly applies to everybody at every age now. Absolutely. Oh, that's so interesting. I was a tutor also. So you're saying you were a tutor when you were in high school? Yeah. So I worked one-on-one with So you'd get a, a kid who was really interested in sports cars. So I'd bring in sports car magazines. And that's how we would work through it, you know? Um, Oh, that's amazing. I was a tutor in high school, but it was peer tutoring. So I tutored kids my own age, which was sort of interesting, but it was a really cool program. Um, What is, tell me, what is peer (laughs) tutoring? I don't know. I went to New York City Public School and they had a program then where the city was paying me by the hour to tutor people in my grade that were struggling or in, you know, maybe a year or two younger, but in high school, essentially, that were struggling with whatever subjects. And they had this peer tutoring program that I was a part of. It was really, it was a great job to have. And I think it really helped. It was kind of a neat thing. And they but, weren't resentful. You were the same age, and yet you were telling them how to do things? No, I think it was more, it really felt like friends helping friends in a way. You know, I didn't, I never got that feeling. <laughs> so luckily, but um, but yeah, we go on a tangent here, but I think it's really about communicating with people and understanding how different people struggle with different things and have different strengths in their lives. And so we're talking, we're, your one real good thing is cook without fear, which I just love that concept because I think so many people, I hear from people all the time 
who say that they're afraid in the kitchen, that they constantly feel nervous and afraid and and they feel afraid to cook for other people and so on. So we're going to talk about combating that, but I wanted to ask you a question first because you get questions. You've been fielding questions from the public for decades. So you did initially on your Food Network show, which I used to love, by the way. And that was like basically when Food Network was really first first started. I totally remember that. Um, And then now you do uh, for Chris Kimball's radio show, Milk Street Radio. And so what what are some of the most common questions you get? Is there like a is there like a common thread there? Well, back, you know, a million years ago when I was on the Food Network, they were very simple. I would say the most uh, repeated one was why is my chicken dry? Why is my white meat chicken dry? And uh, so that came up over and over again. Uh, but there would also be very basic questions like, what are panko breadcrumbs? What's the difference between kosher and sea salt? You know, and that I could field. Um, but the kind of questions we get now, particularly for the Milk Street audience, which is so sophisticated, it's like nuance of their sourdough starter or I just was given a whole steer, you know, of of beef broken down. And how do I cook the testicles? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is like, woo, you know, it's a different ballgame. Whoa, that is really interesting. So people just have very different coming into that with very different skill sets and and levels of expertise of their own. Yes, this is true. It's uh, so. Why is my white meat chicken dry? I think that is a really common question. Um, and actually, so what what is your answer to that usually? <laughs> well, it's because we've got this bad situation. Almost all chicken is is uh, contaminated with either Campylobacter or um, Salmonella, including organic. So you sort of have to take it to 165 at least to make sure you get rid of it. And, you know, hey, because nobody wants to get those illnesses, maybe you take it to 185, at which point it's dead in the water. So um, it's that's why. Um, So you have to I mean, the the answer is to have a good meat thermometer and pay attention. I was going to say about that thermometer. And it's funny when we're talking about cooking without fear, which is the topic we'll get we'll dive into that soon. But Part of it is, I think there are certain things you can do, which I know you'll share with us, but I was also brainstorming prior to getting on this call with you, um, on this show with you. One of the things is to have these tools at your fingertips that are going to help you be more confident in the kitchen. And I think a food thermometer is a critical piece. Absolutely. So So, yeah, so it might seem like, oh, who needs that? But you you only need that if you're a professional. I completely... Disagree. I think you need a food thermometer to really ensure that you're going to cook it just right without overcooking it. Right. Exactly. So, um, so yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so let's talk about fear. Like, why are people? Why do you think people are afraid in the kitchen? Well, it's performance anxiety. You know, it's you're making a meal and. My, in my estimation, and I've never done the research, 99 out of 100 people love to eat. And so you want to make sure that whatever you're cooking for them is tasty. And if it's not, you sort of feel like you've let people down. I mean, that's what I think. Um, you know, it also might have to do with how you grew up and who cooked for you and or who your friends are. I say the bar is higher than it ever was. Because, you know, because of the way 
social media and TV, that everybody thinks they're a great cook or thinks they're learning things. And so there's a lot of competition. I mean, even amongst friends to perform. I mean, I sometimes feel that way with my family because they're all really, really good cooks. And we share this farmhouse in common and every last person there is a good cook. So when it's your turn, you want to make sure your food is good. Um, I think you and I were talking about this because that we both find it kind of unnerving to cook for people sometimes because this expectation is so high. Well, for somebody like us, because we are quote unquote professionals. So, you know, when somebody comes to my house, I think they're expecting like a four course gourmet meal complete with different wines with each course. And that's just for me, that is too much performance anxiety. So I'm here. I am disproving the point that you should cook without fear but um, maybe it's because I suffer from it too. And I'm a professional. Yeah, I do too. And I, I wouldn't say I get afraid, but I feel like I need to manage expectations. Like I don't like that performance aspect of it. I actually, on one of my podcasts, I talked with um, one of the guests about that. I don't like to entertain. I actually hate the word entertaining because it feels like a performance. And I think this ties in, not just for us who maybe have a different type of pressure to perform or expectations, but for everyone who maybe feels like their friends are watching these competition cooking shows and are sort of judging them or that they have to suddenly make something totally Instagram worthy or whatever. It's just not true. So how do we take ourselves? So one part of cooking without fear is taking ourselves out of that and saying, hey, I'm I'm cooking up a pot of pasta you want to come over is something I would say to my friends as instead of like, oh, I'm going to make you a great dinner. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's all in positioning. Um, one of my favorite words, which we use a lot at Gourmet, when I worked in the test kitchen, we do food styling, is rustic. You know, it covers <laughs> basis. Um, but you're right. It's It's all about how you present it. You know, come over for a casual whatever, taco night or pizza night or whatever you're doing. I had a girlfriend who was a really very good cook. And she would call me up. This is before I even got into it and say, well, I have a refrigerator full of rotting vegetables. Want to come over for dinner? And I was be like, Cindy, that's an invitation. But <laughs> over and, you know, she would have made something wonderful. Yeah, I love that. So I think really one way that you can start to combat fear in the kitchen, I think is what we're getting at here, is really managing expectations. Like you can take down that performance anxiety for yourself. You can take those steps to take down the performance anxiety for yourself. Well, and also really hands down the most important thing, which um, I learned from Julia Child, and it was I'm taking it slightly out of context. Remember the famous line, uh, remember remember you're alone in the kitchen. And it that became such lore, you know, sort of like the old fashioned game of uh, telephone that I think people after a while thought, oh, she, I thought she dropped a turkey and picked it up off the floor and said those famous words. As it turns out, she was making either a crepe or an omelet and some of it spilled onto the stove. I think it was on Good Morning America. And she uttered those famous words. But at the end of the day, those words are true. Um, unless you know, you're in the middle of the kitchen cooking for your friends, in which case you can make it very casual. But if you're not, who cares what goes wrong in the kitchen? And I don't mean dropping things on the floor, because there is no such thing as whatever the rule is, the 30 second rule, the five second rule that, you know, it's the second it hits the floor, that's bad news. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, 
you know, making mistakes or things not looking perfect, who cares? You know, just zhuzh it up a bit. You know, there's all sorts of ways to fix things. The only thing you really, really can't fix is if you burned it. Um, you can say you smoked it, uh, but that just doesn't work. But other than that, everything else is either fixable or repositionable. So your souffle falls, call it a pudding cake, you know? So I love the renaming of things. First of all, I totally agree with you that I love the word rustic. So it's again, that framing and then the framing and how you name something you can, if it falls apart, you just call it deconstructed and you're there. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and I also believe unless you have really competitive, nasty friends that they'll pick up on your anxiety if you're anxious. I mean, my basic feeling is everybody's so happy you cooked dinner and they didn't um, that if you keep fretting about, oh, I should have reduced it more. I should have added more acid. I, you know, it needed a counterpart. It got soft. It's dry. You know, they're not they're not going to have fun. You're you're sort of directing how they perceive your meal, whereas it should be about talking with each other and hanging out and having fun, you know, et cetera. And you may be picking it apart in your head in terms of your own expectations of what you were wanting to put on the table, but they're probably totally enjoying it. So, so not pushing that onto them. I think you said, is this something Julia Child also said, never apologize, never explain? I was going to get to that. I have that on a refrigerator magnet on my refrigerator side because it won't stick on the front. Because I, again, you and I shared our anxiety about entertaining Um, So I have to remind myself that, yeah, don't do that. Just present it as you're so happy to make this meal for your friends and let's enjoy it together. That's it. So if you start apologizing about it, then what does that do? That kind of just like puts a damper on the whole mood, right? It just sort of. And then it makes everybody feel like they have to make you feel better. And that's ridiculous. (laughs) So never apologize, never explain. Manage expectations from the beginning. Keep it light and fun. And um, and remember I think you're alone in the kitchen. And remember you're alone in the kitchen. No, Nobody's over your shoulder watching your every move unless somebody is. And then you just have to shoo them out, honestly, because we can't have that. No. Um, so if, if you also, I think if you make, we all make mistakes. I think in general, I think perfectionism, this idea of perfectionism in our lives in general, for anything, you could apply this to anything, that it's paralyzing it and is. it inhibits us from learning. And that so that- So true. Yeah. Yeah. So that sense of fear and that we have to be perfect somehow in the kitchen, um, I think also does the same exact thing. And every single chef I know makes mistakes still. Some uh, of the best things that have, we we have access to or were mistakes. Champagne was a mistake. I don't remember the history, but it was a mistake. Truly? So, yes. A lot of these things. I mean, now, of course, that's the only one I can list. But there are mistakes. I've discovered some of my own mistakes, you know, and, you know, or discoveries. Let's put it that way. One time we were testing a... Um, warm chocolate, no, a chocolate cheesecake. And I came home and I wanted to eat it before it cooled and I ate it warm and it was the best thing I ever had. So I put it in my cookbook as a warm chocolate cheesecake, but likewise, other things, you just suddenly figure out ways to fix them. And then you've got something completely new. 
So yeah. So you have ways of, and so this notion that even if you make a mistake, it usually isn't going to mean you have to throw the whole thing away, except maybe like you say, if you burned it. So if you make a mistake, then you can usually resuscitate it. Yeah. And I know that you have lots of, or several tips for how to resuscitate common mistakes. What well, we can little... come up with one. Give me one and then we'll we'll figure it out. All right. So you and... overcook, you overcook a steak. Okay. Then you just want to douse it in some sort of yummy sauce. I mean, th- that's pretty easy. Um, not that I mean sauces take time, but you can certainly put together a vinaigrette real fast. And there's nothing wrong with a vinaigrette on a piece of grilled meat or cooked meat. Um, so yeah, I have this this sauce that I do called um I, I like to call it simple flavor magic because it just always feels like that to me. And it's literally just like lemon juice, olive oil, and whatever herbs I have all chopped up with salt and pepper. Yeah, no, and- no, no. That's be- that would be beautiful on a steak. There you go. That's like the, what is it? The Tuscan version of grilled steak. That's how they, you know, dress it anyway. But yeah, that would be one thing you could do. I I mainly think about cakes, which is, I know this is, you're healthy. (laughs) (laughs) I eat cake though. (laughs) I'm sure you do. Uh, But uh, there's a couple of ways to, you know, if it looks off, it's mainly visual. It's a little bit harder when it's um, tastes bad. I mean, then you combine it with something else like, a raspberry sauce or a chocolate sauce or some kind of ice cream or yogurt or whatever. But if it looks ugly, um, you know, the old trick we used to do, which is so old fashioned, fashion, so ridiculous, and you have to serve it pretty much right away, is to put a doily on top and sprinkle confectioner sugar and then lift it off. And it looks heirloom all of a sudden. Um, or cover it with some berries, you know, it's... Um, yeah, lot- I, make, I make a cheesecake, like a lighter sort of almost like has a lot of yogurt in it, but it still has cream cheese and it always cracks on top. And I don't care because <laughs> literally I just put berries on top. I can't be bothered with these little fastidious things. No, it's it's not important. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it matters most what it tastes like. I mean, yeah, everybody says, oh, you eat with your eyes. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. But also it's got to taste good. Yeah. And you can still make, you know, putting some berries on it or or like some fresh or a sprinkle of fresh herbs or something on a savory thing is going to fix it in terms of visual. Or like, what if you overcook your vegetable? I mean, sometimes then you get this like grayish vegetable. You're trying to you, like broccoli? Like resuscitating that. Yeah. I think that would do with nice with a vinaigrette too. Maybe the vinaigrette is the answer to all of the, all or of our problems. you could partially, um, you know, mush it down. I mean, you know, puree it a little bit and then add some hot pepper flakes and something. Mm. Um, Actually, to your point here, when I was in Italy, I was so surprised that almost all the vegetables were very long cooked. Yes. Yes. I am. I agree with you. Um, Absolutely. You know, especially like broccoli I've had, I've had it there and it's been very overcooked from our point of view. But um, as long as you season it well, again, it's still got the flavor. It does not lose its flavor, that broccoli. It just doesn't quite look as good. So. Yeah, you can just say you're doing it Tuscan style or something. Just oh, there you go. Repositioning. Back to repositioning. Okay. <laughs> Change the name. I wanted That's... to tell you one thing, though, about the cheesecake, because this is one of those questions I got a lot when I was on the Food Network. So I reached out to Nick Melgeri, you know, the famous baker, uh, cookbook author, and he said, a lot of times what happens with a cheesecake is what goes up must come down and there's eggs in a cheesecake. 
So if you, when you first take it out of the oven, run a knife around the edge, instead of it sort of pulling away because it's stuck to the sides, it will shrink in on itself because you've already loosened it around the edge. I don't know if that will help, but that's, I just, I couldn't help it, but I just, I thought of that because that's a lot of times why a cheesecake cracks. It's because it's sort of stuck on the edges of the pan. So here we are. I'm I'm on my podcast and Sarah Moulton is helping me with my cheesecake. And because I know that's going to work, that is exactly the answer. I can just tell. Well, I, I'd like to take credit, but that came from Nick Maljeri. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Sarah. I love that. I'm totally doing that. I think that's exactly what's happening. So I appreciate that. Um, the other thing, I think a lot of people... Maybe they make mistakes in the kitchen or they feel stressed and frustrated and fearful because they're not really fully focusing and they're not really being in the moment. I think people are like, I feel like I can't cook something nicely. Well, it depends what it is and be like checking my phone every two minutes and answering the running to the (laughs) running to get the door and doing a million things. I can't be like triple multitasking and also cooking dinner. And I think very often people are in the kitchen and they're just not, I feel like you need to just like carve out that little window to just be there for it in that that Zen sort of way and really be paying attention. Um, I think I see people, my friends in the kitchen stressing out, but I see them that it happened because they were checking their phone or texting or whatever while they were cooking. And not reading the recipe all the way through before they even started. You know, I'm on the fence about mise en place because sometimes I think it's a waste of time. I mean, you have to be a somewhat seasoned cook in order to dispense with it. But my idea of mise en place these days is to throw everything I need on the counter and then to start proceeding. Because, you know, when you're making a pasta dish, for example, you put, everybody knows you put on the pot of water first, but then hey, while the pot of water's coming to a boil, which will take, you know, 10 minutes plus, you can cut the onion and then chop the onion. And then you put the onion in the pan and start it softening while you mince the garlic. And then you add the garlic and give it a minute or so and maybe set, set it off the pot while you crush the tomatoes. You know what I mean? So you take advantage of the time that it's it's already cooking. But to have everything on the counter there. So it sort of reminds you of what's next, what's next, what's next. But the other thing I was going to say, based on what you just said, is I think that's a problem in everything we do, is we're not just doing that one thing. I will say right now, I am only talking to you. My phone is gone. It's off. It's on airplane mode. You know, there's nobody else in the house. But how often is that the case, you know, that you're reading a newspaper and there are other things going on or trying to complete a task around the house and there are other things. We are very rarely in the moment anymore. It's so yeah. sad. I mean, and even somebody like me, who's not addicted to my phone, I find myself much more distracted. I have a harder time reading, say, for example, a whole paragraph of anything and focusing. Yeah. And it makes us more stressed and more unhappy, (laughs) less happy, really. So I think it's really interesting because I wasn't expecting this from our conversation, but I do think as we're talking about it, cooking is kind of a metaphor for life in that way. So like managing expectations, not getting caught up in perfectionism, um, kicking people out of your space if they're (laughs) kicking people out of the kitchen, out of the space, if they're just like bringing you down, right? Um, 
And focusing and being present in whatever activity you're doing, it can bring so much more joy. And then I think this notion of being prepared, like reading the recipe all the way through, having your ingredients out, maybe doing the mise en place. If the dish moves very quickly, it's going to take a little stress out of it. Maybe not if you have bigger windows of time in the recipe, but being prepared, but then also relaxing into it and having fun and like not being too caught up in perfection. Right. I mean, you know, one other thing, and maybe this is a life lesson, and this is ripping off from Nike, just do it. You know, when people say to me, how do I learn how to cook? My answer is just cook, really just cook. You know, I used to be a horrible snob when I grad. by the time I graduated from cooking school. And then when I I worked in restaurants for seven years and I was like, the chef way is the only way. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I started working at Gourmet, first in the test kitchen, then later on in the dining room. And I became acquainted with home cooks. And because they sent in recipes and they asked questions and stuff. And then I did that show on the Food Network and I completely came around to having utmost respect for home cooks because they're really no different as long. I mean, if they cook a lot, I mean, if they have to cook a lot and do cook a lot, then um, restaurant chefs, because they make the same recipes over and over, they perfect them. Um, If they cook every day, you can't help but learn. But really, the more you cook, the better you'll get. And if you try not to worry about it and just bumble along, perhaps take notes. I know a lot of people take notes in, in their cookbooks and write on their recipes. And I totally think that's a great idea about how you might do it differently or what you did wrong or whatever, but just do it. Just cook. Yeah. Just get in there. And and I think the rewards will follow and the mistakes will follow, but then you'll build a base of knowledge. You know, my husband hardly ever cooks, right? I'm the cook in the family. I actually, that I don't mind at all. And, but um, actually he might kill me for, <laughs> he might not be happy that I'm telling this story, but we'll see. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. But, um, but so he decided he's going to cook once a week, which I was like, all right, that's awesome. And he normally does all the dishes, which is, so it's, a, I don't feel disgruntled that he doesn't cook, but I always think like, it would be nice to come home to a meal, especially on some busy days. Well, he's, I sort of talked him through roasting some vegetables and roasting. I think he was making burgers and I told him, Oh, the, uh, Oh no, he was making, um, yeah, he was making beef burgers. So I said, okay, pull yours out when, um, when the temperature, you know, sear them and then pull yours out when the temperature is 120 and mine out when it's 140, because I like mine more medium. So then I come home and everything's pretty much ready. Everything's good. He's like, I don't know why, but the meat is taking forever to cook. I'm like, really? How long? Did you put it in cold? I was trying to figure it out. Well, he had the thermometer on Celsius. Oh, no. Hockey pucks you had for dinner. (laughs) Well, luckily we caught it in time. So his didn't come out at 120. Both of ours came out at 140. We Fahrenheit. (laughs) We did catch it before it was ruined. But you know what? It was like, I really didn't, I wanted to make fun of him a little bit was my first impulse because that's how we are with each other. But really I didn't, I held back and it was like, all right, now, you know, he will never make, I guarantee you, he will never make that mistake again. And that's how you learn. And so it's fine. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And had, had he really cooked it on, 140. Well, you couldn't cook at 140 Celsius, but if you, if he had just not realized it and it wound up over really overcooking the meat, then we would have found a sauce for it. Right. Lots of ketchup. (laughs) Tomato sauce and call it a day and you're good. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. But I love the idea of just do it because just do it. 
don't expect perfection and uh, and learn as you go and and definitely get a meat thermometer and put it on Fahrenheit. <laughs> Yes. There you go. There you go. So thank you so much for this. I think this is just, it's such an interesting topic and, and understanding what holds people back in the kitchen, because when you do cook and you do start to feel more comfortable in the kitchen, it's just remarkable how it contributes to your well-being overall. It does. It does. I think there's my religion, not to say I wasn't brought up with religion or whatever, but our religion, our religion, my husband was too, he's Jewish. And I'm not, I'm Episcopalian, but it's irrelevant now. Our religion is family meal. We do it every night. We sit down. I grew up with it. He grew up with it. We even light candles every night. And, you know, it it is such a wonderful way. I, I don't want to say to the end, to end the day, because then there's other things we do a few things after that. But everybody gets to talk. Everybody listens. It's a very, very important thing to do. And I wished every, I, not everybody can because they're working or there's something else going on or different schedules, but it is important to pause and enjoy the process of cooking and of dining. Absolutely. It is dinner time is a sacred space for us too. And it isn't, it doesn't mean it has to be every single day, but even if you make sure you carve out even one night a week, if your family's moving in a million different directions, carve out that if it is important to you, you will make it happen. Right. So. Um, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. Um, and also please let us know where we can find out more about you and your books and your shows and your work. Well, I, I have a public television show that will be airing season 12, starting in October called Sarah's weeknight meals. I do weekly radio with Chris Kimball on milk street. And aside from that, my books, I have four are available on Amazon. They're dirt cheap. Um, <laughs> And I'm on Instagram. I've been doing videos with my niece, uh, which is just little fun, little demo thingies. And so that's pretty much what I'm doing and where you'll find me. That's awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. It's great to talk to you. And, uh, and I really appreciate your work. Thanks, Ellie. You too. Thanks for listening. I hope you've come away with some ideas for cooking more fearlessly. Join me next time for another one real good thing.